thank you for inviting me to preach this evening. Um, well, we're looking at this evening is 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, which can be found on 1150 in the church Bibles, 1150. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through to 27, but particularly thinking about the verses 24 to 27. 1 Corinthians 19, 19 through to 27. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, although I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Now, I'm not a seer of the future. I'm not an oracle. I'm not a prophet in that sense of the word that I can predict the future with any particular gift, but I'm going to make 100% prophecy in the next couple of minutes, and it's a prophecy based on past behaviour being a reasonable indicator of future behaviour. So this is my prophecy. In the next two to three months, four or five people will meet in a curry house to protect the innocent, let's call them Tim Wibb, Callum Tomes, Simon Don Levy, Hadley Phillips and myself. You can't guess who they are, so that's good, they're anonymous. <laughs> and my prophecy is that over the next two to three months, the conversation in the curry house will be, shall we do Paris 2013 Marathon? Or shall we do London 2030 Marathon? We all have particular reasons for wanting to do either a first marathon or another marathon. Some of us want to break 3.30. Some of us want to break four hours. Some of us want to just do a marathon for the first time. And the prophecy is that every single one of us, possibly not me, but pretty much every single one of us, will wholeheartedly say, yes, next spring we will be doing the Paris Marathon or the London Marathon. That is the prophecy. And the prophecy goes even further that not one of us will start that race. <laughs> even though we are absolutely committed in our minds to running another marathon, none of us will line up on the starting line. Because, for one reason or another, the training is too hard. Our knees will give out, 
we can't do the training. We have other commitments, we can't do the training. The training is hard. And although we have this goal, though we have this kind of crown that we want, this 3.30, this four hours, or just to complete it, my prophecy is that none of us will start in 2013 because the training is hard. We'll come back to that in a second, those anonymous people that may or may not enter another marathon, and my prophecy is that they won't. This is what the message says, Paul says. He says, you've all been to the stadium and seen the athletes race. Everyone runs, one wins. Run to win. All good athletes train hard. They do it for a gold medal that tarnishes and fades. You're after one that's gold eternally. I don't know about you, but I'm running hard for the finish line. I'm giving it everything I've got. No sloppy living for me. I'm staying alert and in top condition. I'm not going to get caught napping, telling everyone else all about it, and then missing out myself. So Paul's here in Corinth, and almost undoubtedly he would be familiar with the Isthmian Games that occurred in Corinth every couple of years or so. It's a bit like the Euros. It wasn't quite as big as the Olympics, um, which obviously happened in Olympus, but in Corinth, the Isthmian Games happened every couple of years. Big, big, big event. Just like the Euros, possibly only second to the World Cup. Absolutely massive. And in a not dissimilar way to modern Olympics, there'd be running events, there'd be long jump, there'd be wrestling, there'd be boxing, gymnastics, even equestrian. And Paul would have seen these athletes training hard for this goal that they were after, being the best athlete in the Isthmian Games. And we know that Paul likes analogies from running and fighting. He tells us to run the good race in certain places. He tells us to fight the good fight. So here he is in a not dissimilar way to if we were living in Stratford in the East End. And over the next few months, well, the next few weeks, in fact, we look out of our window and we see these athletes training for the Olympics and we notice the level of commitment that they put into it, day in, day out, week in, week out. And here's Paul making this analogy between these people training for the Isthmian Games or maybe the people training for the Olympics 2012 and our Christian lives. And he tells us two things, that training is important, but also knowing what the crown is about is as important, if not more so. So in verses 25 onwards, he says, everyone who competes in the Games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul is saying that there is a training part of us becoming more and more Christ-like. And training is a behaviour. Behaviour is something that we do. It's not necessarily a thought, it's not a feeling, it's something that we do. It's a doing word. Training is a doing word. And often, training is not intrinsically rewarding. When we train, we don't necessarily feel that's made us a better person in terms of tennis, in terms of running. We don't necessarily find it intrinsically rewarding. We believe it to be rewarding. We believe it will have some ultimate bearing, but it doesn't feel necessarily intrinsically rewarding. Training's like that. It involves sacrifice. It often involves us doing things that we'd rather not do for a greater good. It involves self-control, because it means that we have to, in a way, 
put to one side the feelings of what we would necessarily like to do at any given time in order to do something that we know will be ultimately beneficial. It involves something that's not very fashionable these days. It involves self-control, because again, it means that we are having to be disciplined in what we do. It's hard work often, training. It's hard work. And like those five or four anonymous people, we'd rather not do it when it comes down to it, if we can possibly help it. Because there's no obvious change often with training. And in a way, Paul is drawing our attention to there's a lot of those similarities in Christian disciplines, spiritual disciplines, that help us in our pilgrimage with Jesus, help us to become more Christ-like. And he's telling us to think about the habits that we have and the disciplines that we have that maybe are hard, that take a bit of extra effort, that take a matter of the will, but are very, very important in terms of becoming more and more Christ-like. And we know that Jesus had discipline. We're told a number of times that Jesus got up early in the morning when it was still dark to go off to pray. And I suspect that was part of a discipline that he knew to be so important to maintain his relationship with his father. So in a way, Paul is saying, look, there are habits, there are practices, there are things that we can do as a matter of the will, that if we have them as spiritual habits, they will help us become more and more Christ-like. And yet developing spiritual habits is difficult. It's difficult because quite clearly the devil would rather us not develop those kinds of habits. But it's also difficult because a new habit takes quite a lot of effort. And just thinking about Jeff interviewing me and talking about people with head injury, often they will have very profound memory difficulties, maybe not that dissimilar to somebody with um, quite severe Alzheimer's. And it means that in terms of their conscious memory for things, it's very, very poor. And so doing rehabilitation with somebody that has a very, very poor memory for conscious recall of things, we often have to try and train habits things that people just do over and over and over again in the same way, in the same time, the same place. And over the course of a few weeks, that becomes ingrained, it becomes autopilot, and then it becomes worth its weight in gold. But it takes effort for that four or five weeks. And what we normally say is we concentrate on one small thing that we want to change, and we say put your effort for four or five weeks into that, or the family supporting them do that. And a habit develops. And it may be that something here, Paul is inviting us to think about developing a new spiritual habit or enhancing a spiritual habit that we already have. So there's something about training here, something about doing, something about a behaviour that maybe is not intrinsically rewarding. The practice of sacrificial love may not feel intrinsically rewarding, but it is a vital part of becoming more and more Christ-like. The second um, thing I want just to talk about very briefly as a slight aside is somebody called Chris Duffy. And I suspect that nobody here knows Chris Duffy. Um, From time to time he plays for Tame Tennis Club. And sometimes I play doubles with him. And if you talk to me and Chris Duffy, I would say I'm probably a slightly better doubles player than him. (laughs) He would probably say the opposite. Deep down, I think he's probably a slightly better singles player than me, although I'd never admit it to him because I don't want him to have an edge if we ever do play each other. But we're roughly of similar kinds of standard, give or take a little bit. He plays for Tame Tennis Club. 
But growing up, Chris Duffy grew up with Andy Murray. And he played tennis with Andy Murray. He played against Andy Murray. He beat Andy Murray as a junior. Um, he played for Andy, with Andy Murray for the south of Scotland growing up as a junior. And quite clearly, the difference in terms of talent between Chris Duffy, who plays for Tame Tennis Club, and Andy Murray, who I've just learned has narrowly missed out on winning Wimbledon, possibly by a few close points from what I could see. The key difference, if you ask Chris Duffy, there was Andy Murray had an insane focus on becoming the best possible tennis player he could possibly be. He had an insane desire to do absolutely everything that he possibly could to get better and better and better. He had a sole aim, a sole prize, the sole goal of becoming the best tennis player in the world. And as a consequence of that, the things that Andy Murray did, the amount of training that he did, the amount of time that he sacrificed to becoming a better and better player, was completely disproportionate to Chris Duffy. And hence Chris Duffy plays for Tame Tennis Club. Andy Murray almost wins Wimbledon, and I think will do one time. So our gifts, our time and our talents depend a little bit in terms of where is our ultimate focus. Where, in terms of our gift, our time and our talents, are we placing those? For Andy Murray, he's placed them 100% in being the best possible tennis player and the ultimate prize of winning a Grand Slam. And then Paul here tells us that actually, yes, that's great, having a crown of a Grand Slam. That would be fantastic if Andy Murray won that. But, as Christians, we have a goal, we have a prize that is infinitely beyond that. So how much more should we be continually standing back from our thinking and thinking, what am I doing? Is it towards that incredible, incredible prize that we have? And it's obviously we have, if we are Christians, we have Jesus Christ as our Saviour and Lord. Our ultimate prize and goal is being with Jesus forever. And that is a prize that is beyond conception. But we also have the prize of bringing the things of God down to earth. Thy kingdom come on earth as in heaven. When we, when we give over ourselves more and more to Jesus, when we display more and more acts of sacrificial love, when we display those practices that Jesus did, we are bringing eternal things. We are think, bringing things of eternal significance to the here and now. So there's this ultimate prize, this ultimate focus for our gifts, our time, our talents. In a way, Paul is telling us to stand back, to stand back and remember that, to remind ourselves of that, to challenge our thinking, to challenge our thinking when our thinking has gone to something that is not so much on this eternal goal. And in a way, Paul is kind of dabbling a little bit with what I would say is cognitive behavioural therapy. Um, Cognitive behavioural therapy is a form of counselling. If I'm being interviewed by somebody, I would say it's a psychological therapy. Um, You could call it counselling. But cognitive behavioural therapy has developed over the last 50 years. And it's probably the most um, well-evidenced-based piece of psychological intervention. And it's based on a very, very simple premise. It's not that simple to put into practice, but it's based on a simple premise. And I'm hoping that there will be an overhead that will show this very simple premise coming up right now. Yeah. So this is the fundamental premise of cognitive behavioural therapy, and it is incredibly simple. It says that our feelings affect our thoughts, but also that our thoughts affect our feelings. 
It says that our thoughts affect our behaviour, but also our behaviour affects our thoughts. It says that our behaviour affects our feelings, but our feelings always also affect our behaviour. So this was first applied to people who were depressed, as we were talking with a bit in the interview. And so for somebody who has clinical depression, quite often they have an automatic thought in their mind that I am a failure and I will fail. So that's the thought. That's the thought that's coming in the mind. As a result of that, the behaviour of somebody who believes that they are a failure and going to fail is they often don't attempt to do as many things as they used to do before. So tasks come up, and because they have this thought, I'm a failure and I will fail, they don't do those things. So as a consequence, they don't have so many rewarding experiences in their lives. They don't have so many things that give them a sense of achievement and pleasure, and that then adds to their feeling of depression and reinforces the thought that I'm a failure and I will fail, and so on and so on and so on. That would be a fairly rudimentary part of the cycle. And as I say, it's a very simple set of ideas. And in a way, Paul is actually extrapolating this for a little bit, I think, in cycle two, that I'm hoping will come up here. And he's saying that actually our thoughts and our behaviour and Christ-likeness in a similar way are completely interdependent. And the interesting thing about cognitive behavioural therapy is, one, the idea that we can stand back from our thoughts to evaluate how useful, how helpful, how accurate they are. That's one of the insights of cognitive behavioural therapy. But the other insight that we know about but often don't really pay so much attention to is that the act of behaving does something to our thoughts and to our feelings and to our Christ-likeness. And Paul really, I think, as well as saying a lot of other things, is saying, actually, we need to keep on standing back from our thoughts and thinking about what is this crown that we're looking at at this present time? Is it a crown? Have we got to fix our ideas on a goal, a purpose, a set of ideas, a set of aims that are actually not the ultimate prize? If so, we need to stand back from our thinking and remind ourselves that we do have the ultimate prize that we need to be continually focused on. And he's also telling us, in a way, that what we do as a matter of the will will affect that. It will help us become more Christ-like if we develop spiritual habits, Christ-like habits, doing things as a matter of the will that develop into habits. And that may be the practice of sacrificial love in a different way that we do it now. Or it may be that he's inviting us in a way this morning or this afternoon or this evening, wherever we are, um, is to think about what may be next over the next four to five weeks. Is there something additional that I can do as a small habit to increase part of what Paul is talking about here. Could I, for example, as a matter of the will, over the next four to five weeks, before I have my first cup of coffee at work, have a 30-second prayer for my work colleagues? That will take effort. We'll have to remind ourselves. But if we did that over the next four to five weeks, we probably would have developed a habit that may be very, very helpful in this process. Or it may be that we think, well, before I have my lunch every day, I will just spend one minute that I don't now do reading a text from the Bible and just focusing on that for a minute before I have my lunch every day. Or it may be that we say, I'm going to play one Christian song on a CD per day at some point as a habit, as something that helps us to develop these things that will help us to become more and more focused 
on the things of God. Maybe that we buy the big issue once a week as a matter of sacrificial love. And that becomes a spiritual habit. The list is endless. But in a way, I would be inviting you this evening to maybe think about over the next four to five weeks, is there something that as a matter of a habit I can develop? Something of sacrificial love that I can do on a regular basis. Maybe it's very small that I don't do now. But over the next four to five weeks, maybe we can develop an extra part of this training, as it were, that helps us in our Christ-likeness. And the second thing clearly Paul is telling us is to continually to stand back and challenge our thinking about what is our prize, what is our aim, what is our goal. Because we have an incredible crown. We have a crown that is way beyond anything that we can comprehend and yet it's so easy to lose sight of that. It's so easy for other thoughts and other preoccupations to get inside our minds and for us not then to have that focus on the things that have eternal significance. And so really, in conclusion, Paul really, I think, is saying a bit, be a bit more like Andy Murray. Be a bit more in terms of having that insane, mad, all-encompassing focus, not on the goal of a grand slam, but on the goal of things that are eternally significant. Being with Jesus forever, bringing the things of heaven down to earth through sacrificial love. And he really is saying be a bit less like those anonymous people, Tim Wibb, Callum Tomes, Simon Donlevy, Hadley Phillips and myself, who say, yes, we've got a definite goal, but actually, as a matter of the will, the doing things don't come to pass, and therefore we lose sight of the thing that's important. Amen. We are going to-